Well, I'm glad to be here at Southern Adventist University. I'm looking forward to our time together. But before we begin our message tonight, I'd like to begin with a word of prayer. So I'm going to invite you to bow your heads with me as I kneel and ask God to bless our time in His Word tonight. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for all of your goodness to us, for all of your mercies toward us. Lord, we thank you for the word of truth and the message you have entrusted to us as a people. And Father, tonight and in our subsequent nights, I'm asking for a special outpouring of your Holy Spirit. Father, give us understanding, open our understanding to receive the truth you have to share with us here, not just in an intellectual way, but in an experiential way, Lord, that we may be doers of the word and not hearers only. We ask it, Lord, in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. Well, we are starting this evening with our first in a series. Now, the series is entitled The Everlasting Gospel, which in some ways sounds kind of mundane. And what I mean by that is it could go any direction. But what I want to speak about very specifically over our next several nights together are the three angels' messages of Revelation 14. And I'll tell you what I mean by that in a minute. You know, I, I was thinking about this. As a Seventh-day Adventist, there's a question that we really ought to be asking ourselves today. And that question is, what are we still doing here? I mean, seriously, what are we still doing here as Seventh-day Adventists? This church was raised up to proclaim the soon coming of Jesus Christ over 160 years ago. And it's interesting to me, and don't misunderstand me, uh, you know, you, you want to give kudos and credit to, to, to people sometimes for the, you know, or to the, you know, the truth or the institution or whatever else. Uh, what I'm saying is, it seems odd to me when we have these celebrations, these centennial and what have you celebrations in the Adventist Church. Something doesn't seem right about that. We say, hey, praise the Lord, we've been here 100 years. Hey, we're celebrating 150. Hey, 160 golden years. I mean, this doesn't seem right for a church that should have been gone a long time ago, that should have fulfilled her mission, especially, well, let me back up a little bit and let me make, let me, let me clarify something. In the Seventh-day Adventist Church, We've gotten to a point in this day and age where fewer and fewer people are really talking about Jesus coming soon. Now, I know we hear, we still hear it a lot, but I know people that'll say, you know what, Pastor, I thought my kids would never enter college. I thought, I remember when, just like you, I used to say Jesus was coming soon and, you know, so on. The idea is that we, we somehow feel that the reason we're still here is because God is busy doing something we just don't know what, and when he gets around to it, he's going to come, and we thought it would have been sooner than this, but it's not. The problem with that thinking is that we have very clearly an inspiration, and not just a rare statement hither and yon in the writings of Ellen White, but repeatedly we have statements that say that the reason we're still here is not because we're waiting on God, but he's waiting on us to finish the work he's given us to do. One such statement is in the book Evangelism, and I'm not, I don't have that on the screen, but it says this. It says, we may have to remain in this world many more years because of our insubordination to God. 
You know what insubordination is? That's failure to come under the leadership of your commanding officer or obey your commanding officer. And that commanding officer is Christ. We may have to remain in this world many more years because of our insubordination to God, but let us not add sin to sin by charging God with the result of our own wrong course of action. Wow. The point is, we are here because we have not taken hold of the work that Christ gave us to do. So on uh, one side of our mouth, we're saying, oh, we love Jesus, and we're just so glad, glad to be Christians and be his servants in this earth, and yet we're not doing what he told us to do. And so when we have these celebrations, they say, oh, 160 years is the, or 100 and whatever years is a great controversy vision, and uh, we celebrate this, that, and the other. What are we celebrating but our own mediocrity and failure to do what God's told us to do? We have to have a new look at the mission and, and, and again, why we're still here. And I'd like you to go with me to the book of 2 Peter. We're going to look at a text that is probably familiar with you, but let's go to 2 Peter chapter 3 and just clarify this from Scripture. This is, as I said, a, pa a passage that you are probably familiar with, but maybe not in this way. I'm not sure. Uh, it took me a while to connect these two texts, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. This is one that, that I had heard for a while, but I'd heard just this verse, and it wasn't connected to the rest of the passage. You'll see what I mean in a minute. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, the Bible says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise. Now, let me back up a little bit. In 2 Peter chapter 3, in fact, the heading in my Bible says, The day of the Lord will come. It's talking about the day of the Lord or the second coming of Christ. And you pick that up in verse 4, where it says, that there are scoffers who say, where is the promise of his coming? So there's the promise we're talking about. So in verse 9, it says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, the promise of his coming, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to, uh, toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now, basically, Peter's saying, you know, God's not slacking off. It may appear that way. You might have thought he should have come sooner. Jesus could, should have come sooner, and he didn't. It's not because God, God's slacking off. It's because what? Because God is long-suffering, is the word, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. That's right. Okay, so basically, the reason that Christ hasn't come yet is he's giving time for people to repent. He's wanting to give more time so more people can be saved. Now, like I said, I've heard that verse Oftentimes, for, for a period of time, I hadn't read on, but I want you to go to verse 10 with me. Just keep reading. The Bible says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness looking for, and notice that next word, hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will out with a fervent heat. So here it brings up a very interesting word for us today, says that we are looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, speaking again in the context of the second coming of Christ. Now, if you can hasten something, what does that mean, to hasten it? That's right, to speed it up. Now, if you can speed something up, what else by inference, can you also do? You can slow it down. And so the Bible's telling us that we have the ability to speed up or slow down the coming of Christ. Now let's consider our greater context. 
Why was it that the Bible said that Christ hasn't come yet? It's not because God's slack, but because what? That's right, he's willing. He's, he's, he's not willing for any to perish. He wants all to come to repentance. So he wants people to have an opportunity. And then we have a few verses later where it says, we can hasten the coming of Jesus. By implication, very clearly, the only way that we could do that is giving people, more people, an opportunity faster. That means we've got to get the message out. And that goes right along with what Jesus told us in Matthew chapter 24. I want you to turn there with me. Matthew chapter 24, and we're going to verse 14. Another well-known passage, at least to most, to Matthew 24, verse 14. The Bible says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and what? Then the end will come. So in his signs, the signs in Matthew 24 that Jesus is giving, predicting his coming, he points out one of the greatest signs here being the gospel, the proclamation of the gospel. Once the gospel is preached, the end will come. That's what it's saying in 2 Peter, that God has entrusted his people with a gospel message, and when they finish that work, he will come, but he's not going to come sooner because he wants to give people time, right? He, he, he's long-suffering, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. So he looks to his people who should be giving the message, and if we really were on top of it, says we could have hastened the coming of Jesus. Now, I know there are going to be people who argue this and say, you put it all on God's people. Like, he's not dependent on us. I hear this kind of thing all the time. Well, he kind of is. Uh, and I wouldn't say totally. Look, God works through his people, but let me make something plain here tonight. If you refuse to be used by God, God will replace you with somebody who will be used. The Lord will come, and he will not keep silent, the scripture says. And so, look, you know, if you want to argue the hastening idea, you're arguing with Peter and you're arguing with God because the Bible's clear that we can hasten it. So while I would agree that not all of the responsibility lies on us, some responsibility certainly does. You know, when the Lord has given us a commission as a church, we need to carry forward that commission. We need to be serious about it. The early church was serious about it, and we need to be serious about it as well. Now, Looking at Matthew 24, 14 again, I want to clarify something. He says, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world. This is where I really want to move into our message, and this is why we're talking about this in our um, few evenings together, is because I believe that everything is hinging on this message being given, and we need to be clear on that message, on the message that Christ is telling us to give. Now, you're saying, oh, it's a gospel message, right? We just... Yeah, it's a message we just tell people Jesus died on the cross to save them from their sins. Accept Jesus and you'll be saved. Well, yeah, yeah, in part. But I want you to go with me to Revelation. Did you know that in Matthew 24, now Matthew 24, Jesus is predicting the preaching of the gospel to all the world. These are predictions. They're signs that he's talking about that will come. And when these things happen, then the end will come. And this is what he says. The gospel is going to be preached to all the world as a witness. I want you to go with me to the book of Revelation, and in Revelation, we will find the fulfillment of this prediction. We'll actually see what Jesus predicted taking place, happening in Revelation chapter 14. That's what Revelation 14 is bringing to our view. I want you to turn to Revelation 14 and verse 6 with me. Revelation 14 and verse 6. 
The Bible says, Here then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the what? The everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. Right. Saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. So, the Bible makes the point here that here's, we're seeing this first, this, this first angel, this angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel. Who's he preaching it to? Every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. What did Jesus say? This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness unto all the nations. What do we see here? The gospel being preached to all the world, every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. This is exactly what Jesus said would happen. Now, if you go ahead to verse 14 with me, notice what it says, just a little bit further in this passage. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. What's he doing? The next verse says, he's going to thrust in his sickle, for the time has come for him to reap the harvest of the earth. What is this a picture of but the second coming of Christ? Okay? So, in other words, what we're seeing in Revelation 14 is the gospel being preached to every nation and then the end coming. It's the direct fulfillment of what Jesus said would happen in Matthew 24. The important part of it is for us to realize what is contained here in this message. Right there in the first message, it says, the angel says with a loud voice, quote, now it says he's got the everlasting gospel to proclaim, and then he begins proclaiming, fear God and give glory to him for the what? The hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth to see in the springs of water. So this message about the judgment hour is an integral part of the gospel message that has to be preached before Jesus comes. And I want you to be clear on something. There's only one church that preaches this message, and that's the Seventh-day Adventist church. Now, I'm not saying that to be arrogant or anything else, but you check me on this. You go around to all the, every, any denomination you can think of, any church you can think of, they are not preaching the three angels' messages of Revelation. They are not about that. Many of them don't even know what they are. Well, no, none of them really know what they are. Not like we know what they are, because God has entrusted this message to us. We'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute. Now, it goes on in verse 8 to say, Another angel followed. This is the second angel. Babylon has fallen, has fallen that great city because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. So here we've got a message about the fall of Babylon. Verse 9 says, Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation, he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image or whoever receives the mark of his name. Verse 12 says, Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. These are what we understand as the three angels' messages. This is the gospel Jesus said must be preached. And I want to make this point this evening very clear. We are the ones called to preach this message. And if we don't preach it, ultimately it will be preached. But the onus of preaching it lies with us tonight. And what that means is we need to be clear 
on what this message is. We need to be clear on what it means to us today. I, I know for uh, a lot of Seventh-day Adventists, we, we can think back in history. And we say, oh, yeah, we're going to go back. In fact, um, I have a quote coming up where we find that the first angel's message was, was originally preached in the early Advent movement of 1840 to 1844. Well, we're a long time from 1840 or 1844. And so what happens is we think of it as, as uh, dusty old history books, and we don't see the pertinence of this message to us and to the world we live in today. In fact, there's a lot of talk about how we live in this different world. It was the postmodern world, and then the modern world, and then the millennial world. And we always have some way to categorize this, the, the current society in such a way as to make it sound like our message really isn't going to fit the, the world that we live in. But I want to tell you that this message is still calculated to perfectly fit where we are. And that's what I want to talk about in our time together. Now, in light of what I've just read in Scripture, looking at the gospel, in, especially uh, in the context of these three messages, I want you to notice this statement on the screen from Testimonies, Volume 9, page 19. It says, In a special sense, Seventh-day Adventists have been set in the world as watchmen and light bearers. To them has been entrusted the last warning for a perishing world. On them is shining wonderful light from the Word of God. They have been given a work of the most solemn import, the proclamation of the first, second, and third angel's messages. Notice this next sentence. There is no other work of so great importance. They are to allow nothing else to absorb their attention. Those are solemn words. Those are very solemn words. And we should have a little bit of a sense of why that is from the text we just looked at. This message has to be preached to prepare the world for the coming of Christ. So nothing else is to be allowed to absorb our attention. Let me ask you a question. Do you think there are other things that are absorbing our attention in the Adventist Church today? Well, I'm going to tell you there are all kinds of things absorbing our attention. And you can see why. The devil's trying to distract us from the, the focus of getting this message out to the world. I want you to notice this next statement from the book, Early Writings, page 258. It says, The true understanding of these messages, speaking about the three angels, you'll see this in a moment, the true understanding of these messages is of vital importance. The destiny of souls hangs upon the manner in which they are received. Okay, and that doesn't just apply then, that applies now. There's a manner in which they have to be received. There's an order, there's the first and the second and the third. And tonight we're going to be talking about primarily about the first, and we're going to see why there's a certain sequence to the presentation of these messages. Now look at the next statement here from the Book of Evangelism, page 196. It says, all should understand. How many? All should understand the truths contained in these messages and demonstrate them in the daily life, for this is essential to salvation. Okay? Essential. What does that mean? It's not an option. Okay, so all of these statements are true. I'm, I'm wanting us to get a sense. I mean, I say all of these statements. There are uh, voluminous statements in the writings of Ellen White that could be shared here that say the very same thing. I'm just wanting you to get a sense of the importance of these messages and our need to understand them. Okay, I want you to look at this next statement with me from now this one. This will blow your socks off. It's from 19 Manuscript Releases, page 41. And I encountered this, uh, it's probably been a few years ago now, and, and it blew my socks off when I encountered it, and I think it's going to do the same for yours, even if you've heard it before. It does for me every time I, I read it. 
Notice what it says. It says here, the light that Christ revealed to his servant, the prophet, talking about John the Revelator, is for us. In his revelation are given the three angels' messages and a description of the angel that was to come down from heaven with great power, lightening the earth with his glory. That's speaking about Revelation 18. We're going to look at that this weekend as well. In it, that is the revelation, are warnings against the wickedness that would exist in the last days and against the mark of the beast. We are not only to read and understand this message, but to proclaim it with no uncertain sound to the world. By presenting these things revealed to John, we shall be able to stir the people. Notice the next sentence. The usual subjects on which the ministers of nearly all other denominations dwell, what? Will not move them. Now, don't miss that. The usual subjects on which the ministers of nearly all other denominations dwell are not going to move the people, but our message will move the people. What are the, what are the subjects that most ministers dwell on? What do you think? Yeah, the, the cross, the sacrifice of Jesus, the love of God for our souls. Are those bad things? No, they're vital things. So why is it that they don't stir the people? I'm going to tell you, because we are gospel-hardened in this world. It's something, I, I shouldn't even say that. I, I, I could say we are, we're this way in North America, but the reality is the carnal heart is selfish. It is opposed to spiritual things, and there needs to be something to awaken an interest in spiritual things, and that something is our message. You'll see that as, I, as, as we go on, continue on the statement. Watch uh, where we go here. Uh, look at that last sentence again. The usual subjects on which the ministers of nearly all other denominations dwell will not move them. We must proclaim our God-given message to them. The world is to be warned by the proclamation of this message. If we blanket it, if we hide our light under a bushel, if we so circumscribe ourselves that we cannot reach the people, we are answerable to God for our failure to warn the world. So God has entrusted us with a vital message that needs to be given to the world. And I want to tell you something here tonight. Now, I am not a prophet nor the son of a prophet. But, so this is not a, a, a rock-solid prediction. But I'm going to tell you that thing, the things that are happening in this world today are things like I've never seen. I mean, when I came into the church 20 years ago, I thought, Jesus is coming soon. Now I think Jesus is coming real soon. And what I mean by that is what we're seeing in our world, whether you're talking about wars or natural disasters or you know, the, the political chaos, is unprecedented. And, and so my prediction, as it were, is this. And, and I was going to say, I don't mean to unsettle you, but I guess I kind of do. I really believe that there are those of you here now in a course of study that may never realize the field you're studying for. That the world is not going to continue in a, a, a peaceful and regular enough way that you're going to find yourself in that field you're studying for, be it business or, 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 or nursing or whatever it is. I believe that's how close we are. Now, I could be wrong about that, and we could be laughing about it 20 years ago and saying, yeah, Pastor Howard said, you hear this? old, and I don't know what the media is going to be then, you know, it was like we used to have cassette tapes, and I don't know what it's going to be, you're listening it on. It could be that way, but I don't think so. Here's what I do think. 
I think you will stand before the kings and queens of this earth to bear witness for Jesus Christ. Why am I saying that? Because a lot of college students are so busy with their coursework that they put their spiritual lives on the back burner. They say, I know I should be having more devotions. I know I should be focused on, but I got to get through these classes. I'm going to tell you those classes are not going to prepare you for what's coming. What's going to prepare you for what com what's coming is your relationship with Christ now. And so I want to encourage you in light of what we're looking at here, in light of what God has entrusted you with, that you do not put your spiritual life on the back burner, but that you make it a priority in your life because God is going to use it. And he's going to use you and do amazing things through you. I believe that. So it's in light of these things, it's imperative that we know and understand what these messages mean to us. And I want to start tonight and just look at that first angel's message a little bit and try to understand some of the practical implications. First of all, let's look at the historical implications briefly. In other words, what did it, what did it mean to them when it was first preached? Now, I mentioned to you already that the first angel's message was proclaimed by the Advent, great second Advent movement in the years immediately preceding 1844. I mean, there are different statements that uh, I have from Ellen White where she says, you know, from the Advent movement from 1840 to 1844. But here's one on the screen. Notice this, Great Controversy 362. As early as 1826, the Advent message began to be preached in England. The great truth of Christ's soon coming in power and glory was extensively proclaimed. Now think about it for a minute. Um, you know, the message is fear God, give glory to him, worship him, because the hour of his judgment has come. For us today, we know that that judgment hour message was pointing to 1844 when Jesus, as our heavenly high priest, would enter into the last phase of his priestly work, the anti-typical day of atonement, to prepare for his coming. And so we can think along those lines, okay? And, and when you think of the word judgment, you know, judgment is, there are two things that judgment will bring to you, bring to your attention. One is accountability. If you've got judgment, if you're going to be judged, you've, you're going to be held accountable. You're going to be held accountable for your life. The other thing that judgment brings into the mix there, brings to mind, is law. And you have to understand, now it's, it's way worse today, but it was still an issue at the time of the Advent movement here in America that there were Christians who felt that the law of God was kind of replaced by the grace of Jesus, that the law of God didn't matter so much and what have you. The problem is when you start talking about judgment, you can't have judgment without law because you have to have a standard of judgment, a standard of right and wrong. And so the judgment hour message what brought home to the conscience the reality that we're going to be judged by the law that a lot of people have said wasn't all that important. <laughs> and what I mean, what happens is that really makes you take note and evaluate your spiritual experience. Now, there's another point I want to make here that goes along with this. It's, you, it's, it's, it's important for us to understand that when the first angel's message was preached, it was prior to 1844, which, which means when we talk about judgment in the heavenly sanctuary, that wasn't a part of their message because they didn't know it yet. That, that had not been revealed to them yet. They didn't have the understanding, the concept of Jesus in the heavenly sanctuary. What's interesting to me is, you know, okay, <clears throat> let me hit the pause button here uh, before I go on with other comments. So they didn't know about Jesus in the heavenly sanctuary 
So the question we have to ask is, what was the judgment hour message to them then? I mean, if it wasn't about the judgment hour, Jesus entering into the anti-typical day of atonement, what was it? See, it's important for us to know the, 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 what the message was to them because it's going to be the same thing to us, even in light of uh, the enlightened understanding of the judgment hour. And as I said, when you use the word judgment, judgment implies accountability, judgment implies law, and when you are faced with those kinds of things, you, it makes you take a harder look at who you are and what you're doing. For example, how many of you have ever had a, you've been driving down the road, and uh, in fact, a neighborhood, for, for some reason for me, I'll use the neighborhood, you're driving through a neighborhood, and you notice a squad car comes up behind you police car and you're driving along and now this police car is following you anybody ever have that happen now you're not you're not speeding well the reality is probably the first thing you're going to do when you notice that is oh wow how have I been how have I been driving <laughs> did I did I come to a complete stop at that last stop sign right I mean you don't even have to be intentionally doing something wrong but when the law comes up all of a sudden you're you are on your Toes, you're watching your P's and Q's, right? You're being careful. You are now thinking, wow, was I, was I speeding? Now you're watching your speed limit more carefully, making sure you're using your turn signals. Isn't that right? And it's not because of anything other than the presence of that police officer. This, listen, this is the effect of that law, of that accountability. And when the first angel's message was preached, it caused the people to take a hard look at where they were spiritually. And if you think about it, when you, when you go back in Scripture and you read about the typical Day of Atonement, because the Judgment Hour is about the anti-typical, when Jesus enters into the, where the real high priest, Jesus Christ, enters into the real sanctuary, the one in heaven. But in the typical atonement with the earthly priest, in the instruction, the Bible says the people were to afflict their souls. You remember reading that? They were to afflict their souls. They were to search their hearts and evaluate their spiritual experience. Well, that's exactly the effect that the first angel's message had on the first people who heard it, even though they didn't know about the heavenly sanctuary. And so you can see the design effect was to bring, that, uh, bring them to uh, an understanding of their true condition before God. Now, I read the statement here on the screen, looking at it again here, Great Controversy 362. It says, the great truth of Christ's soon coming in power and glory was extensively proclaimed. So you see that to them, to preach the first angel's message was really just preaching the soon coming of Jesus and am I ready? Look at the next statement from Great Controversy 368. It says, America became the center of the great Advent movement. It was here that the prophecy of the what? The first angel's message had its most direct fulfillment. And notice the glad tidings of Christ's speedy return was the focus of that message. And so the first angel's message to them was, there's accountability, the judgment. When did they think the judgment was going to be? It's going to be when Jesus came. And so to them, Jesus is coming. We're going to have to stand before him. What are our lives like? Are we ready to meet him? I want you to notice this statement in Great Controversy, page 379 now. It says, the first angel's message of Revelation 14, announcing the hour of God's judgment and calling upon men and women to fear and worship him, was designed to separate the professed people of God 
from the corrupting influences of the world and to arouse them to see their true condition of worldliness and backsliding. I like to say it was a divine wake-up call. That was the purpose of the first angel's message. It was to help them to see where they really were spiritually and they weren't where they hoped to be. The fact of the matter is they, were, they had become, begun to mingle with the world and God was trying to separate them from that. And their condition had become one of worldliness and backsliding. And the first angel's message was designed to, to draw them closer to the Lord. Let me ask you, do you think we have worldliness and backsliding in our church today? What about our own lives? I'm going to tell you we do. And the first angel's message is designed to have that same effect on us today as it did then. So we see the message to them was a primarily a message about getting ready to meet Jesus. It was a divine wake-up call to help them to see their need of Christ. Now, I want to interject here. We talked about judgment in the law, and I want to interject something about the law, because today, even in the Adventist church, oh, we don't want to talk about law, because we're going to sound legalistic. We're going to sound like the Pharisees. Understand something. While the law doesn't save anybody, was never designed to save anybody, the law always had a function, and that function was to help us to see our need to be saved to help us to see our need for Christ. So when sermons are preached without the law in them, when there's not straight talk and, and convicting talk about our sin, I've had people tell me, well, you don't want to, you go and preach those sermons and with all that convicting talk, it makes people feel guilty and they leave and they're all discouraged. You know, sometimes people need to get discouraged. What does the Bible say? Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted blessed are the poor in spirit not poor in wealth poor in spirit what does that mean there's spiritual poverty blessed are those who see it blessed are the poor in spirit blessed are those who mourn the idea here is there there's a appropriate time for us to realize our sinfulness so that we see our need for jesus i want you to notice this statement on the screen from evangelism 231 it says the law and the gospel the law and the gospel revealed in the word are to be preached to the people. For the law and the gospel blended will convict of sin. God's law, while condemning sin, points to the gospel revealing Jesus Christ. Thus, both the law and the gospel are blended. In no discourse are they to be divorced. In what? No discourse. And there's, a, there's another statement in the book, Great Controversy. It's in the chapter, Modern Revivals. Man, if you have not read that chapter, or if it has been a while, that's what's happening today even in our church. Modern Revivals, you check it out. And it's in that chapter that one of the points made is this. The tendency of the modern pulpit is to strain out the divine justice from the divine mercy. We just want to talk about God's mercy and his love and his kindness, but we don't want to talk about accountability and judgment. It's so true. And so what the, the effect of that is that we think we're in a better condition than we are. It's what the Bible calls Laodicea. We think we're rich and increased in goods when we're really wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. The first angel's message was designed to wake people up to their true condition, employing the idea of judgment and law. Listen, this is the same, you see the same thing in the ministry of John the Baptist. Tell me what John the Baptist's ministry was. You remember what the Bible says his baptism was? It was a baptism of repentance. That's right. A baptism of repentance. That's what John, that's what John preached. And I want you to notice with me uh, Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3, 
and verse 4, I believe, Matthew, Mark, Luke, chapter 3, and verse 4, speaking of John the Baptist. In fact, let's start in verse 3, Luke chapter 3, verse 3, it says, And he went into all the region around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, cry, uh, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, what? Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough way is smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. What this is saying in, in the prophecy of Isaiah, I mean, how did John the Baptist come and, and fill in all the valleys? He bring in big earth movers and, 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 and bring in loads of dirt? How did he fill in the valleys? How did he uh, make the mountains, bring the mountains and hills low? It's talking about the message of repentance. When John preached repentance, it puts everybody on what level? Is anybody better than another? No, it puts them all, it levels everything. And the, and the, and, and the leveling out of humanity, the, 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 the taking away of the pride and putting everybody on the same level was preparing them to receive the gospel. How many people need the gospel? Everybody needs the gospel. And so the message of repentance was to prepare the way so people knew they needed the remedy of the sickness that they didn't even know they had. And once they knew they had the sickness, now they're ready for the remedy. This is why Jesus said that it is not the uh, sick or the well who need a physician, those who are well, but those who are sick. Therefore, the Son of Man came uh, to call not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So the law and the gospel work together. And the message of the first angel brought that law in, in its uh, uh, context of judgment and accountability to the minds of the people, preparing them to receive Christ. Now, one other I want you to look at in this line, and then I want to bring this a little closer to home before we wrap up. And we're going to go to Luke 7. We're going to turn in our Bibles to Luke 7, verse 29. Now, this is Jesus' eulogy, if you will, of John the Baptist. John is in prison. He's about to be beheaded. Jesus knows it. And he begins talking to the multitudes about John the Baptist. And he's bringing up to them in Luke 7, verse 29, while he's responding uh, uh, to, those, to the way people receive John's message. Notice, notice verse 29. It says, And when all the people heard him, and that is Jesus, basically praising uh, the ministry of John the Baptist, you know, endorsing it, saying, This is a prophet of God who came with a message from God for you. When all the people heard him, even the tax collectors justified God. That's an odd statement, isn't it? Because you always think of justification of people, but to justify is to declare somebody that was, was right. And it says, even the tax collectors justified God having been baptized with the baptism of John. In other words, they said, God was right to send John. We needed him because we're sinners. We needed our sin pointed out. We needed to be called to repentance. Even the tax collectors justified God having been, notice, having been baptized with the baptism of John, but the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. In other words, they didn't think they needed that 
repentance. And what did they consequently do? Listen to me and do not miss it. They rejected Jesus Christ. They rejected him. The message of John was to prepare the way to receive Christ. And in the same way, the first angel's message was to prepare the people to receive the light of the second and third angel and the righteousness of Christ. But those who did not receive it were not prepared for it. Again, there's a role. There is a time and a place for our sin to be pointed out. And while we love to hear the goodness of God and the love of God for our souls, there are times we need to understand that we are sinners facing eternal death because of our sin, that we are responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. It's not, an, it's not an accident that John was preaching repentance or that Jesus, when he started his earthly ministry, started with the words, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. It wasn't an accident that Peter, when he went before the religious leaders, preached Jesus Christ, whom you crucified. I mean, he was bringing home to them the reality and the depth of their sins so that they might desire the Savior. Now, let me bring this. You know, all of this is just trying to explain the first angel's message role in awakening the people to their true condition. And I want to move to where we are today and why I think this is so important for us today. And I want you to follow me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And I want to look at why I believe this is so critical for us today as a church, this first angel's message. I mean, they're all important. But a lot of times we talk about the third angel's message, and we're in the time of the third angel's message. And we don't seem to understand the significance of this and the need for the first angel's message. Now, 1 Corinthians 10, this is an interesting passage. Starting in verse 1, the Apostle Paul is recounting the experience of Israel in the exodus from Egypt. And he says in verse 1, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that, and I want you to notice the word all, okay? I, want you, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud. How many passed through the sea? All passed through the sea. How many were baptized into Moses? All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of the spiritual rock, that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Notice verse 5, but with most of them, God was not well pleased for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now, these things became what? Our examples. And I'm not going to read on there. I want to I flesh this out. This passage is a powerful passage. And I want you to think about what the apostle is saying. He's talking to the people in his day, God's people, and pointing them back to Times past and saying, listen, we have lessons in history that were written for our example. You go back to the Exodus and it says they all, 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 all came out of Egypt, went through the Red Sea, ate the manna that came down from heaven. In other words, they all shared in the same experience. They all shared in the same culture. But he says with most, most of them didn't make it. And just to really solidify that for you and, and, and make this um, very uh, explicit, and what, what do I want to say? You go back and look at those who came out of Egypt. Does anybody know how many the Bible said came out of Egypt? The Bible counts 600,000 men coming out of Egypt. That's not counting women and children. If you count a woman for every man, you're talking about one, 
million, 200,000 people. And, and then you count children. If there's a child for every adult, you've got nearly 2 million people, okay? I want you to understand, it wasn't 25 people who came out of Egypt. There's nearly 2 million. Do you know how many of those 2 million went into the promised land? Of the original number, there were two. Two out of 2 million. That really brings it home, doesn't it? In other words, the apostles saying they all had the same experience. How can they all have the same experience and only two make it? And I'm going to talk to you about something called cultural Christianity, more specifically cultural Adventism. And that's what Paul's talking about here. They all had the same culture. The problem is they didn't all have the same conviction. See, cultural Christianity, cultural Adventism is not religious or spiritual at all. It's not based on personal conviction. It's based on whatever everyone else in the Adventist microcosm is doing. In other words, you can grow up in an area and do certain things and live a certain way because it's the culture you live in, but it's never your own, was never your own personal conviction. An Adventist Christian is somebody who has seen the truth, who has made a personal decision on the truth, who's tested it, studied the word, and taken their own personal stand. But a cultural, Advent, and a cultural Adventist is somebody who is just going along with uh, whatever the, wherever the wind is blowing. Okay? And the reason that Paul is bringing this up, and the reason that I'm bringing this up, is that I fear, I, I don't fear. I know from my experience as a pastor, I regularly meet Adventists, young and old, who have no clue. They could not tell you why they believe what they believe to save their life. They have never studied and tested out the truth. And what that means in a practical way is, let me, let me just share you with you some practical things with you here. And this is going to be new to you, and it's going to make my point. There was a time, and a lot of Adventists remember this, where the Adventist culture was, you know, they grew up eating veggie meat. They grew up not drinking coffee. They grew up not going to movie theaters. And you guys are looking at me saying, oh, you know, what are you talking about? I mean, Adventists drink coffee today. Adventists go to movie theaters. They grew up not wearing jewelry. I mean, this, it, they grew up that way. But just because they grew up that way doesn't mean that was their own personal conviction. That's exactly why uh, uh, most of you young people are thinking, what do you mean? I mean, we do, we, I see that all the time. We wear jewelry. We go to the movies just like everybody else. We, we, we drink coffee just like everybody. Yeah, we do. We live like everybody. We live like the world. And nobody bats an eye. You know why? Because when you are a cultural Christian, when the culture changes, you change. When you are a Christian by personal choice and conviction, because you took a stand on Bible truth, Culture will always change. Culture is always ever-changing. But the Christian will not change unless the change in the culture is in accordance with Scripture. The Christian will stand for truth. And the problem is when you grow up in a cultural Christianity, what you develop is a form of the, uh, uh, it looks Christian. On the outside, it's Christian. But the substance is not there. The personal conviction of truth is not there. The being grounded in the Word of God is not there. The personal commitment to Jesus Christ is not there. You have a form 
but the form denies the power. And what ends up happening is, as I said, when the culture changes, you change because you never knew any different. And the fact of the matter is, culture tends to change. And when the church is cultural, it tends to drift toward the world, not away from the world. And drifting toward the world is pleasing to our carnal hearts. The indulgences that we as Christians try to steer away from, whether it be in the way we dress, in our adornment, whether it be in the things we eat and drink, those things are self-crucifying to the, uh, they're crucifying the selfish nature. And so there's an appeal. And hey, when the whole culture is doing it, if everybody in the church, if your church teachers and parents and leaders are doing it, hey, it's got to be okay, right? If the majority is doing it, it's got to be okay, right? That's the way we think. The Bible says in Exodus 23, verse 2, do not follow a multitude to do evil. That's exactly what Paul's saying here in 1 Corinthians. They all, look, the majority was there. Two million people, but only two of them stood firm. That, that, should speak volumes to us today. So the first angel's message today comes to awaken our conscience and help us to evaluate what kind of Christian I am. Am I just a cultural Christian? Do I even know what I believe and why I believe it? I better find out before Jesus comes. Is my commitment truly to him and his word or is it just so far as is popular in the culture that I'm in? And I want to share with you as we're coming to a close here a statement that is, uh, I don't know if you've heard this before. This is a passage, a part of, a, it's a relation of a vision that Ellen White had of one of Satan's council meetings with his angels, one of his committee meetings, whatever you want to call it, his strategy meetings. You know, the devil doesn't just wake up over breakfast and say, I wonder who I'm going to tempt today. No, he lays his plans ahead of time. And Ellen White was privileged to get an insight into what his strategy was to warn God's people. And this is recorded in a book, Testimonies to Ministers. It's recorded in the book, um, Spirit of Prophecy, Volume 4. I'm reading it from Test uh, Spirit of Prophecy, Volume 4, rather, page 339. You got it on the screen here. This is just a piece of what the devil told his angels what his strategy was especially for the sabbath keepers for you and me okay i'll check this out this is satan talking to his angels through those that have a form of godliness but know not the power we can gain many who would otherwise do us great harm lovers of pleasure more than lovers of god will be our most effective helpers those of this class who are apt and intelligent will serve as decoys to draw others into our snares. Man, we look at somebody who thinks they know a lot or who does know a lot. They, they, may, they might even know the, the Greek and the Hebrew and they're all versed in all kinds of, they talk and they sound real intelligent. The devil says, man, I can use them because they love pleasure. They may know all that stuff, but I can use them in my cause more effectively than anybody. They're going to serve as decoys to draw others into our snares. Now notice he goes on. Still the devil talking to his angels. Many will not fear their influence because they profess the same faith. No, they don't practice the same faith, but they profess it. Oh, yeah, I'm a Seventh-day Adventist. Oh, creation. No, I don't believe in creation. I think, uh, I think creation happened over thousands of years, uh, and I think science bears that out. You know, that's the kind of thing they'll tell you. Well, but they profess the same faith, and they'll sweep away multitudes. 
because they're decoys. Many will not fear their influence. Incidentally, I, was, I believe in creation in six literal days. But I'm saying that there are those who sound very intelligent who will say that kind of thing, and the devil will use them as decoys, because, and they're effective because they've professed the same faith. Many will not fear their influence because they profess the same faith. We will thus lead them, the Adventists, to conclude that the requirements of Christ are less strict than they once believed. Right? Oh, we used to believe you shouldn't wear jewelry, but now we realize you just shouldn't wear much jewelry. We used to believe you shouldn't go to the movie theater. Now we just realize you, you, you need to be selective. Um, yeah, we used to believe that there's certain music that would be inappropriate, but now we realize that, you know, it really doesn't matter as long as the lyrics are right. We used to believe that uh, you shouldn't drink coffee or, you know, use stimulants. And but now we realize that, hey, everybody does it, and, and uh, it may not be the best thing for you, but it certainly isn't something God would forbid right? I mean, this is what it's saying. This is over a hundred years ago, seen in vision, reported to you and me. We're reading it right now. Here's the devil telling his angels, this is what we're going to do. And my young friends, this is exactly what he has done, just what he planned. And we're doing it. We're following his deception and we're oblivious to it. will make them conclude the requirements of Christ are less strict than they once believed and that by conformity to the world, they would exert a greater influence with worldlings. Look, if, I, if somebody invites me out to coffee and I never go to coffee, how am, I gonna, how am I gonna really be able to win them? It's that kind of thing, right? But if I conform to the world, I'm gonna have a greater influence over them. No, the reality is they're gonna have a greater influence over you. That's the reality, in fact, in Great Controversy, page 509, it says this, Conformity to worldly customs converts the church to the world. It never converts the world to Christ. Never. The devil knows that. So here he is laying his plan to his angels. Now notice this next sentence. Still the devil talking to his angels. Once they believe the requirements are less strict, so they let their guard down, Conforming to the world would help them to be reaching more people. They let their guard down. That's what Solomon did, by the way. You can go back and look. He thought he was going to win all those women to the Lord, and they won him to heathenism. It says, thus they will separate from Christ. Don't you understand that when we lessen, when we lower the standard of our Christian life, we are separating ourselves from Jesus. They will separate themselves from Christ. Then they will have no strength to resist our power, Satan and his angels, and ere long, they will be ready to ridicule their former zeal and devotion. Ridicule their former zeal and devotion. For at first, it's, oh, you know, we're not as strict as we used to be. And then it comes to a point where you start making jokes about how strict the Adventists used to be. And I'm going to tell you what, I know you hear that on this campus. You hear it from keynote speakers. Kind of them say, oh, yeah, Adventists, we used to be so legalistic. That's exactly what the devil planned. The first angel's message was a wake-up call to the people in the early Advent movement, and it's a wake-up call to you and me today. We need to evaluate where we're standing and ask ourselves if we are really, truly following Christ, if we are really, truly committed to Christ, if we know the Word and we are doers of the Word and not hearers only. The 
first angel's message was designed to prepare the hearts of the people to receive Christ. And just as those who rejected John's message also rejected Christ, so those who reject the convicting or resist the convicting power of the, of the Holy Spirit in the first angel's message are prepared to reject Christ in the other two. We're never going to receive the righteousness of Christ while we're rejecting this first angel's message. That's calling us to accountability. Notice early writings, page 260, says those who rejected the first message could not be benefited by the second. And by rejecting the two former messages, they have so darkened their understanding that they can see no light in the third angel's message. That has happened historically, and it's happening now. Just like they rejected John's message, and so they were unfitted to meet Jesus. Folks, we've got to be willing to look at our spiritual lives and, and let God shine his light, the light of truth, on our lives and bring conviction of sin. And it may be uncomfortable, but that discomfort is going to lead us to a strong relationship with Jesus. I want to finish with this statement here this evening. Our work is to proclaim the commandments of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Prepare to meet thy God is the warning to be given to the world. It is a warning to us individually we are called upon to lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us. There is a work for you to do to yoke up with Christ. Make sure that your building is on the rock. Do not risk eternity on a probability. Oh, my young friends, don't just assume that we are where you need to be in your relationship with Jesus. Do not risk eternity on a probability. Make your calling and election sure. Get on your knees and evaluate in the light of truth. Where am I standing? Go to the word, go to inspiration and seek to understand where God is calling you to be at this hour in earth's history. Do not risk eternity on a probability. You may not live to participate in the perilous scenes on which we are now entering. I understand you guys have just laid to rest a friend here in the last week or so. A young person at this university, nobody expected to die, not this young, succumb to a disease. We don't know we have tomorrow. That's what it goes on to say. You may not live to participate in the perilous scenes on which we are now entering. The life of no one of us is assured at, uh, for any given time. Should you not watch every moment? Should you not closely examine your own self and inquire, what will eternity be to me? And I want to leave there, leave off right there tonight. That first angel's message speaks to us tonight just as surely as it did to that early Advent movement. Just as surely as John's message spoke to those people by the Jordan. What will eternity be to me? Where am I going to spend eternity? There is no time to waste on making your spiritual life a priority. Now, how many of you, as the Spirit of God is speaking to you tonight, by the raising of your hand, want to say, Lord, help me to make my spiritual life a priority now. Show me where I may be walking at a distance from you so I can be walking hand in hand. Is that your desire tonight? Let's pray. Father in heaven, Father, we thank you so much for the light of truth. Father, we thank you for the convicting power of the Holy Spirit, even though it's uncomfortable. Lord, we need to know, we need to be awakened 
to where we're standing. We need to be awakened to our spiritual um, experience. We need to be awakened to the sin in our life that needs to be put away while we still have a heavenly high priest to do it. We need to be empowered by your spirit to conform our lives to your will and to your word and to be brought closer to you, to be walking in step with you and with Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So Father, bless us to this end for we ask and pray it in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.